0: I came across this uh, this guy who had done a, a selfie, and it's it's it, it it was his attempt at the ultimate selfie. Uh, check this out. He, work, he works for an airline. Uh, what's his name? His name is Tim Lebranche. This is him, and he and he put his his digital camera at the end of the um, airplane, and he had it on a a remote clicker, and then he just left it in one place, and he took a hundred photos of himself sitting in different seats. And he, and he photoshopped it all together again. It's, it's genius. Isn't that so funny? So, again, if you want to see that again, I put that on Twitter this afternoon. Uh, it, it's, it, that's his attempt at the ultimate selfie. So, today, you might be looking for God. You might be looking for ultimate fulfillment. You might be looking for reason for living. You might be looking for a bigger purpose. You don't need to look any further. Because actually, this isn't the ultimate selfie. God's taken the ultimate selfie, and we're going to read about it today. The ultimate selfie, Niven read it for us a moment ago. We're going to read it again. It's in John chapter 1, and it's it's God's self-disclosure of himself to the world. So John chapter 1, epic verses. And I believe right here, you don't need to look any further. All the answers you look for are here. John 1 verse 1 to 3, and then on to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him, nothing has been made that has been made. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own. That's the Jewish people. But his own did not receive him. And yet, to all who did receive him. And that's not just 2,000 years ago. That's right now. To everyone who receives Jesus, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who, himself, who is Himself God, is in closest relationship with the Father, has made Him known. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's loaded. So we're just going to work our way through it. And we're going to spend a lot of time on verse 1. And I just want want it to impact you like it's impacted me. I want it to transform the way you view God and the way you view life, the way it's transformed me. Verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. Now, atheists, for a long time, Believed that the universe was eternal. That there was no beginning, it's just always been. That the universe has always existed. In, in a sense, you could say the universe was self existent. That's what atheists believe, until about 1927 when what we know as the Big Bang Theory was developed. The Big Bang Theory was very simply scientists, as they were observing the universe, they were noticing that the universe was expanding and in its expansion they knew because it was expanding at a consistent rate they figured plotting it back that there was indeed a beginning it blew atheism and the belief that the universe had always had been out of the water there was a beginning but you've got to go a bit further back than that. <laughs> because for that, whatever that boom was, if indeed that's how it happens, who or what caused that? You see, you have a scientific law. Welcome to science today, by the way. <laughs> Welcome to physics. You have a, a law called the law of inertia. And the law of inertia states this, that if something is stationary, it will remain stationary forever unless an external force is imposed upon it to stop it being stationary. Like that bulb, if no one kicked it or nothing happened to it, it would just stay there forever. Okay, on the flip side, if something is in motion, it will continue in motion unless something from outside of it hinders it. Okay, that's the law of inertia. Now, inertia affects golf. If you're a golfer, you are totally into the law of inertia, aren't you? Yes. So yes. If you're not a golfer, don't, don't... Anyway. The law of inertia, if you're a golfer, so you've got the golf ball, it's at rest, it's stationary. And the golfer swings the club, and the, lo- the golfer causes momentum to happen in the club, and when the club hits the ball, all of a sudden, one object from outside causes the other object that was stationary to now be in momentum. It's now moving. Now, if nothing was hindering that golf ball, it would just shoot on into eternity. Like, if you hit that golf ball in space, it would just keep going. It'd be a rubbish game of golf, right? It would be a total rubbish game of golf. It'd be like, that's it. Game over. I mean, um, aim at the black hole. I don't know what you do, but game over. Now, what happens when you hit the golf ball is the law of inertia kicks in again, because it now starts to be impeded by external forces so that ball's flying through there but it starts to be affected by gravity an external force is affecting it now and it's starting to feel the resistance of the winds <laughs> going through this and it's been affected and then when it hits the ground boom it hits the grass and it doesn't just keep rolling forever because the grass has a resistance to it so it starts rolling to stop so the law of inertia without the law of inertia golf would be impossible and yet, it's the thing that makes golf hard, because the gol- every golfer you know, if they can drive 200 yards, they want to be able to do 250 yards. They want to go that bit further. They want to overcome the law of inertia, yet the game would be rubbish if it wasn't for the law of inertia, because the ball would just keep going. Now, in other words, if something is stationary, it needs something from outside of it to move it, everything has, has every effect has to be caused. So, Bang! 1927, the Big Bang theory was developed based on a constantly expanding universe. What was it that caused that movement? Something had to cause the movement. The Bible gives us a very clear answer. Before everything. It says it in John, but it also says it in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. It says, in the beginning. In John, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning of the Bible, it says, in the beginning, God. That before everything, God. The universe isn't eternal. It's not the eternal thing. God is the eternal thing. God always has been, always will be. Let's go back to the verses again, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. Now, just look at those verses for a minute. I want you to do some counting with me. How many times can you see words like, phrases like, in the beginning? How many times does in the beginning appear? How many times does the word word appear? How many times does the word made appear? How many times does the word God appear? You notice there's a few repeats there. It's reiterating points. In the beginning, it says it twice. Was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Repeats word, repeats God, talks about creating. It links completely back to Genesis chapter 1. Let's go there for a moment. Genesis chapter 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word. That's what it says in John. In Genesis, here's how it reads. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So how did he do that? How did he set that whole thing in motion? The earth was formless and void, and the darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surfaces of the waters. Then God... Then God... Then God said... Let there be light. God said, God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness and God called the light day and the darkness. He called night. Notice that before the world existed, words existed. God speaking existed. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let they separate the waters from the waters above, from the waters below. And God made the expanse and he separated the waters from below, from the expanse of the waters which were above the expanse. And, and it was so, and God called the expanse heaven. And God said, let the waters below uh, the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so, and God called the dry land earth. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. And God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. I'm skipping ahead lots of verses. And it says, then God said, let us make man in our image. That's not how it should read, is it really? Should it not be, God said, let me make man in my image. And yet the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says, God says, Let us, God refers to himself in the plural, make man in our image and in our likeness and let them rule. How did God create the world? How did God set everything to motion? He spoke. The word goes back to John. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. God said, let us make mankind in our image. The links between John 1 and Genesis 1 are so strong. And it's giving you a revelation of who God is and how God operates. It's incredible. God, right here, in Genesis, we're introduced to what John makes clear. What he makes clear is this, is that Jesus is God. Let's go back to John In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John is starting his gospel here, and he starts the gospel with the conclusion. Now, he's saying from the word go in this gospel, and he's going to read about 20 or so chapters beyond this, he's saying at the word go that Jesus is God. He's giving you his conclusion even before you start. Now, most books You've got to build up through and the suspense is building and you get to the conclusion at the very end. But John does it the opposite way around. John gives you the conclusion. He starts, he, he gets you to start there, actually, but that's not where he started. It took him three years to get that conclusion. He just spent three years with Jesus. In fact, if anyone knew Jesus, John knew Jesus. He was called the beloved disciple. He was the guy who was so close to Jesus in that last supper. He was the John the beloved disciple, who ate and drank with him, who lived with Jesus, who saw the miracles Jesus performed, who traveled with Jesus, and for three years was intense and close contact with Jesus. Same John, who was one of the first people to witness the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Same Jesus, same John who looked after Jesus' mother. Remember when Jesus was on the cross, he said to John, "Behold your mother," and, Behold, and to his mother, "Behold your son." And from that day forward, John brought Jesus into his house. So John brought Mary into his house, and he looked after Mary. So if anyone knew Jesus; he'd been hanging out with his mum, he'd been hanging out with Jesus, he'd seen the miracles, he'd witnessed the resurrection. If anyone knew Jesus, John knew Jesus, and he suddenly realised. It took him three years to realise it, but boy, did the penny drop he realizes this is not just a man. This is none other than God in the flesh. And so he starts the gospel right there. He starts the gospel by saying, do you know what? He's been been asking, what kind of man walks on water? What kind of man raises people from the dead? What kind of man can just touch leprosy and it disappears and the limbs grow back that had been eaten by that horrible disease? What kind of man just does that stuff? what kind of man commands the winds and the waves and they just they go silent what kind of man is that and at the end of those three years he realized this is none other than god there was a 100th birthday party being held in the royal festival hall and there was an actor who was at that party called diana cooper she was an old lady by this point and she had a failing eyesight And she was in conversation with a lady. She didn't know who she was. But she was a lady who seemed to know her. And she was a very polite and friendly lady. And she had this great conversation. And as she was kind of trying to figure out who this person is who's speaking to her, who who she kind of figured knew her. And as she came close, she saw her diamonds. And she she suddenly realized who it was. It was none other than Queen Elizabeth. And she was so flummoxed. And she said, oh, she curtsies, beg your pardon, ma'am. I didn't recognize you without your crown. And I think that's what it's like with John. He was spending time with the king, not just the king, but God himself in the flesh. The one who set the whole thing in motion was now in the flesh, walking in front of John. It took him three years to get it. But John deliberately did it that, he, that we would get the conclusion before the beginning of the book. Why? Because he didn't want it to be like a build-up of suspense. He just wanted to let you know from the word go, this is how good it is. And then he wanted you to read the rest of the book in awe at the magnificence of this God. He wanted you to know from the word go as you begin reading John's gospel that the one you're reading about is none other than God. The one you're reading about is the one who formed you. The one you're reading about created the stars and the galaxies and the universe. The one you're reading about is magnificent and he will eventually judge the world. He's God. But then John, what he does is he adds another layer of complexity to it. It's not just he's God but he reveals the nature of who God is. You see, the verse says, verse 1, the Word, in fact, you can read it with me. Ready? Theologians, you ready? Are you ready? Here let's go. One, two, three. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, you'd agree that's pretty simple, the youngest child among you could understand that. The word was with God. The word was God. Each statement is really simple. It's so simple, and yet it's so complex. It's so easy, yet it's really difficult. It's so simple a child could get. That's so simple. A child could get it, and yet it's so complex and deep and rich that theologians could spend years writing about that verse on this verse, this verse is why we believe in the Trinity. This verse alongside a whole lot of others, but this is a key one. We believe that God, one God, eternally exists, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So see when it says the word that's speaking about Jesus, the word was with God, that's speaking about the relationship within the Trinity. And then see when it says the word is God or was God, that's speaking about the fact that Jesus is indeed God. So he's not just with God, he is God. And then that links way back to Genesis. Remember Genesis one twenty six: God said, let us make mankind in our image. God speaks about himself in the plural. Why is this important? It's hugely important. It's not just important for theologians. This is important for life. This is important for 2015. This is important about how you get God. This is why you're not going to start a war and other religions do start wars. This. This is so fundamental to your humanity that you get this. Let me explain it. Jesus prayed a prayer recorded for us in John chapter 17 verse 24. He said to the Father, You loved me before the creation of the world's. That's a remarkable statement. In other words, before the world existed, God experienced relationship and knew what it was and is to love. Isn't that interesting? C.S. Lewis said this, if God were a single person, God would not be love. You see, to experience love, you have to have an object to love. And if before God had created anything... God was just father not son and holy spirit just just father just like the muslims would believe just like classical jews would believe just he's just god monotheism not trinitarian monotheism just monotheism then what we've got in our hands is a dilemma because it means that god had no frame of reference for this word we call love in fact the bible goes further and it says in 1 john chapter 4 verse 8 it says God is love. But if God isn't Trinity, God couldn't be love. Because for love to be expressed, you need to have someone to express it to. And if God has eternally existed as one person, then he was a lonely God. He had no one to show love to, and he had to create beings in order to show and experience love. In other words, God had to learn to love. Sounds like not God to me. Any God who has to learn anything is not God. But you have to understand that because God has eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is always relationship from eternity past. And therefore, God is love. Only in Christianity did love precede life. In every other religion, the creation of life had to precede love being experienced or expressed by God. Religions that don't understand that God is tr- Trinity and has existed eternally in relationship, religions that don't understand that are known for God being an absolute and authoritarian and powerful God. But when you understand God is Trinity, we do understand he's absolute and all-powerful, but we also understand that God is love, and that transforms how we live our lives, And how we interact. The word was with God. And the word was God. One God, three persons. Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And it's not three gods. One God, one being, three persons. Verse 18, John 1 said the same no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Here's a diagram that might help you, our confused minds. You see, you've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all are God. Now, the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. They are distinct persons. You can't say the Father is the Son. You can't say that. The Father and the Son are distinct. And yet, Jesus is God, the Father is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. We believe in not three gods, but one God in three persons. It's so simple, and yet so deep and so complex. And what cults do, like Jehovah's Witnesses, and to some degree, certainly the Uh, Mormons, and other cults, they try and simplify what was never meant to be simplified. They try and make logical and try and make easy what isn't easy. Instead of accepting the complexity and incredibleness of this, they try and simplify it. So, a Jehovah's Witness might say to you in the door, you have misunderstood what it says in John chapter 1. They say, instead of in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, they've come up with their own translation called the New World Translation. I think it should be called the New Rubbish Translation. (coughs) It's absolute tosh. Honestly, you try and find out who, what scholars and what their credentials were that developed that, that translation, you will find no record of who the scholars were who developed that translation. And they'll say, oh, it's because they're so humble. It's not that they're so simple, because they were, they're agents, and they just had no qualification whatsoever to qualify the big claims they made. And basically they've taken anything in the Bible that disagrees with their theology and changed it. So in their New World Translation, it says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was a God. So they get around this idea of the Trinity and they say that Jesus was indeed created and Jesus in fact was an angel. That's what they believe. Now, without knowing the Greek and the Hebrew and all that stuff, you can talk to them and show them how that is wrong. Because if you go ahead to verse 3, which says, through him all things were made. You can say, well, through him all things were made. Jesus wasn't created. But they would say, ah, but that's, so Jesus was created, then everything else was created through him. That's how that that means. But then the second part of verse 3 says, without him nothing was made that has been made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In other words, you can't create yourself. You know, you can't create something from nothing. Jesus existed eternally, and everything that ever was made was made through Jesus Christ love the Jehovah's Witnesses who come to the door, love them to bits, but they're deeply deceived. The truth is that Jesus is God, one with the Father, eternally one God, three persons. But then John goes further and he says, this Jesus who is God and who's existed in Trinitarian relationship with the Father and the Spirit, this Jesus came into the world's. That's where we go to verse 14. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, he that made man was made man. It's a remarkable thought. Uh, C.S. Lewis talking about the Russian cosmonauts. The Russians sent cosmonauts up into space for the very first time. And when the Russian cosmonauts went up into space, uh, they came back saying, there is no God because we went up there and we didn't see him okay right it's not a very strong argument but c.s lewis said that's crazy that would be like hamlet going up into his attic and hoping to find shakespeare you know it it just doesn't make sense because you don't ever get the well you rarely get the author of the story in their own story you see the you see the signs of the author all over the story you see the indicators that there is an author all his handiwork all over the story but it's very rare for you to see the author in the story until Christmas. And that's when the author of all took on flesh and he entered into our story. And not, it used to be that all we could see was the signs of the author all over everything. But from Christmas onwards, the author took on flesh, came into our existence with love in his heart for the human race. Go back to verse 1 again. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God why did John choose to describe Jesus who would come into this world with the word word why did he call him the word in the Greek language it's the Greek word logos why did John describe him as the logos well here's one reason in that day and age in the Greek world, Greek philosophers were constantly debating the meaning of life and the ultimate purpose of life. And the way they described it was, they described ultimate purpose of life was the logos. That was common in John's time. So when John was saying, in the beginning was the word, he was answering the question that was debated constantly among all the Greek philosophers and thinkers of his day. What is the ultimate purpose? John was saying, Jesus is the ultimate purpose. But that wasn't just why John was saying this. There was a much deeper and more profound reason. When John said, in the beginning was the Word, you know, he could, why didn't he say, for example, in the beginning was truth? Or in the beginning was light? Or in the beginning was the way? Or in the beginning was life? Why did he say, in the beginning was the Word? John realized this. Having spent three years with Jesus, he suddenly realized the words of Jesus are the words of God. The miracles of Jesus were the miracles of God. That the way Jesus touched people's lives is the way God touches people's lives. And the way Jesus brought truth was the way God brought truth. He realized that Jesus was the climax of all of the prophecies that had gone before for hundreds of years, predicting the coming of one into the world who would be God in the flesh. Jesus was the climax of all words, all the words that had been spoken for hundreds of years, but 320 prophecies predicting the first coming of Christ alone. Jesus was the climax. He was the ultimate words, the fulfillment of all those words. He was the he was the buildup that the Old Testament had been building towards. He was the climax. He was the focal point of the Old Testament. You could say he was in the Old Testament concealed, where he's in the New Testament revealed. He was, he is what the entire Bible is all about. Jesus is the word because the whole of the Bible, Old Testament looking forward, New Testament looking back, is all about one person, the central figure, Jesus. That's why he's the word. Someone put it this way. He said, it's as if a great wind blew through the Bible and lo, it stood up a man. That all the words and all the expectations and all the prophecies and all the pictures and Abraham offering his son Isaac and Moses the deliverer, blood being shed and people were set free from Egypt. All these pictures and all these shadows and types in the Old Testament, all the prophecies that were building up from the Old Testament were all pointing towards this one man, Jesus Christ. And it all culminates in Jesus. You see, Jesus is all, sums up everything that God says to this world. But more than just what he taught, and some people want to just reduce it to just what Jesus taught. It's more than just what Jesus taught. Jesus was God's word, not just that he said everything God would say, but he is everything that God is. And he did everything that was necessary to be done that God needed to do for the world. He sums up the whole deal. Sidlaw Baxter put it this way, he said, fundamentally, our Lord's message was himself. He didn't come merely to preach a gospel. He himself is that gospel. He didn't come merely to give bread. He said, I am the bread. He didn't come to shed light. He said, I am the light. He didn't come to show you the door. He said, I am the door. He didn't come to name the shepherd. He said, I am the shepherd. He didn't come merely to point the way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Verse 18 sums it up for us. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who himself, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. That's why he's the word. He has revealed the Father. Jesus is God's ultimate selfie. You want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. S. D. Gordon said this. Jesus is God spelling himself out in a language that men can understand. You see, Socrates taught for 40 years. Plato taught for 40 years. Aristotle taught for 40 years. Among them, that's 120 years of teaching from some of the greatest philosophers this world has ever seen. 120 years combined. And yet in three years of teaching and ministry, Jesus' impact causes their impact combined and all other philosophers and artists and writers that this world has ever created it makes them all pale into insignificance those three years of Jesus's life his words have transformed planet earth more than any other person ever has thanks so what was his purpose and then what's our response to that what was Jesus's purpose in coming into the world let's go to verse 10 to 13 he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave them right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Jesus came to make sonship possible for you that you wouldn't just be interested in God but you'd become a child of God forever that's what he came to do let me give you some quotes by famous people who say it better than I ever could John Blanchard said this the son of God became the son of man in order that the sons of men might become the sons of God Thomas Watson said it this way, Christ took our flesh upon him that he might take our sins upon him. You see, for God to pay the price for all your sin, for all my sin, for all our regrets, to die in our place, he had to take on flesh. So God takes on flesh and then takes upon himself our sin and on that cross he died in our place. Acts 20, 28 says it so clearly. Care for the church of God, which he obtains with his own blood. The church of God, which God obtained with his own blood. That wasn't just a man dying on the cross. That was none other than God in the flesh dying in your place. Don't you tell me God's not interested in your life. Come on, you don't see it. Jesus, who is fully God, died in your place. God is so radically interested in your life. No one's done that for you. God did that for you. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he's dedicated to you making it. That's how much he's completely committed to you standing before him, clean, forgiven from all sin, declared righteous for all eternity. You think your sins are big? You think your past is strong? You think, oh man, how how can I overcome this? You have no idea. Your sin is weak compared to the power of the grace that flows from that cross. It's weak. Honestly, the darkest day you have is nothing compared to the brightness of God's light that can cleanse away all your sin and declare you righteous and cause you to stand before him for all eternity. This was God who did that for you on the cross and he resurrected and he's alive right now. So you better be glad about that because that's what Christmas is about. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, if Jesus is not true God, how could he help us? If Jesus if he's not a true man, how could he help us? And that's so right. He had to be a man to die in our place. He had to be God to make it an eternal act that could count for every person who's ever lived. There was a Gaelic legend years ago about a, a child that was stolen away by an eagle. An eagle swooped down and caught this tiny little infant and in its claws and lifted this infant out of the village and flew up to its perch on the top of this uh, kind of risky cliff edge, and there's a ledge up there where this eagle had its little eaglets, and it took the little baby from the village up there, fully intending to devour this child. And the strongest men in the village were trying to scale this cliff edge to try and rescue the baby, but none of them could make it. They all tried but failed, and then out of the crowd came this frail old lady who incredibly scaled this cliff edge, got the child, and returns. Everyone was blown away. How on earth could this lady do this? And when they asked her, how is this possible, she said this, I am the baby's mother. You see, folks, her love enabled her to do what others who were stronger could not do. Now, God not only loves us, but is eternally strong. And the reason God was willing to go to the nth degree is because God is love. He is absolute moral. He is absolute power, absolutely. And yet, God is love. And because God is love, instead of abandoning His creation to their own self imposed, sin driven, disastrous route that we're heading on, God came into the world, paid the ultimate price for our sin. So, What's your response to him? And Jesus always splits the crowd. Always splits the crowd. He split the crowd in his day and he splits the crowd in our day and he maybe splits the crowd here today. So some people will say he's God. Some people will say no, he's not. But you have to pick a lane. The Jewish religious leaders reacted against Jesus. It says in John chapter 10, verse 33, the Jews answered him, Is it, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you but for blasphemy they're standing there with stones in their hands ready to stone jesus And they didn't okay he he survived that moment but it's not for good deeds that we are going to stone you but for blasphemy because you being a man make yourself god it's interesting if you, that sort of thing happened on numerous occasions in Jesus' ministry and not once did Jesus say oh no no you've got it wrong sorry you misunderstood completely what you think i've said that no he didn't say it he didn't say that he just kind of went with it and just kind of avoided the, the stones. But the Jews understood that he was claiming to be God. And they figured that was blasphemy. On the other hand, Thomas, who through Jesus' ministry had been a doubter. But at the end of the ministry, having seen Jesus risen from the dead, this was his conclusion, John 20, 28. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God... And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who do not see, and yet have believed. I've never seen Jesus, but I believe in Jesus. So according to Jesus, I'm well blessed. I believe Jesus is God. I'm with Thomas. He is my Lord and my God. So where are you at today? He's, it's not enough just to say he's a nice guy, or he's a prophet, or he, he was a son of God in a, in a lesser sense. It's not enough. He's either God and your ultimate savior, or he's a liar and blasphemer, you make your choice. G. Campbell Morgan said it this way, if Christ is only a man, then I am an idolater. If he is very God, then a man who denies it is a blasphemer. That's how much Jesus splits the crowds. If Jesus is just a man, then I worshiping him makes me an idolater. But if Jesus is indeed God, if you deny him, then you're blaspheming. C.T. Studd, the famous cricketer who burnt his back, and that's what we call the ashes now. He burnt his back and he he gave his life for a life of uh, missionariness. He said this, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then there is no sacrifice too great for me to make for him. If you don't worship Jesus you're not worshipping God. I don't care what your religion is. If you don't worship Jesus, you're not worshipping God. No Jesus, no God. No Jesus, you know God. That's how divisive this is and how radically true Christmas is. Napoleon Bonaparte, the French dictator and military commander said this, If Socrates would enter the room, we would rise and do him honor. But if Jesus Christ came into the room, we would fall down on our knees and worship him. You can worship Jesus as God without any fear of blasphemy. Let me end with this verse from Revelation. Revelation 5.13. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. You want to repeat that with me? Let's, let's, don't, don't just repeat it. Let's take a moment here. We're in the presence of the king. Take a moment. Let's just say it to the king just now. One, two, three. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion Forever and ever. I say it again. Blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. That's what we think of you, God. Jesus, we thank you that you are with the Father and you are God. Thank you, God, that you took on flesh and you paid the price for all sin on the cross and in your resurrection made it possible for us to have eternal life. God, we worship you, the true God, the one God. Not three gods, but one God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Complex, simple, but complex. Awe-inspiring. We just worship you, God, in Jesus' name. So in his presence just now, as we're coming out of this Christmas season into this new year, take a moment to respond to him if you've been seeing him as less than God that's not actually that's not acceptable before God you actually need to repent you need to acknowledge him the way he acknowledges as himself this is God Maybe you've never accepted Jesus. Maybe you've never understood who he was or the love that God had for you from the very beginning. This is your moment to respond to God. Your moment to, you know, start the end of this year, start a new life with God that will put you instead for a phenomenal year ahead. Life is amazing when God's in it. I don't care how many troubles you have or how many challenges you face, That stuff happens to everyone, whether you're a believer or not. But I'm saying, when God's in your life, when Jesus is the Lord of your life, life is amazing. Life is eternal. Life is forgiven. You are righteous, and you are eternal.